One thing I've been thinking about this week is how you can't escape the reality that the culture we live in affects us. Sometimes it affects the, the words we use and the, the things we say. I read something this week that made me laugh. Uh, a guy posted that it's a good thing we, we named the dinosaurs at a time in history when people were reading Latin and mythology. He said, if we named them today, there probably would be a, a heckin' chunkosaurus and a, a northern thick scaly boy <laughs> made me laugh. What is he talking about? He's talking about our culture affects us. And that's a meaningless, silly example. But there are serious ways in which the culture we live in affects us. It, it can affect the way we understand reality. It can even affect the way we understand and believe about God, sometimes even warping that understanding. Today we're going to look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's going to kick off his last week before the cross. The rest of Matthew is going to be here. You can see that's the focus of the gospel writers. Seven whole chapters on that last week. We're going to look at the way he entered at the triumphal entry because the way he entered left them and leaves you and I wrestling with a very important question. That question is this, what kind of king is this? What kind of king is this Jesus? John in his gospel tells us it was at the time of Passover Jerusalem was swollen with, with hundreds of thousands of visitors from out of town to, to remember when God had delivered them from Egypt. Those of us from Prescott have a similar experience around rodeo time. You go out there and the roads are full because everybody has come from everywhere to celebrate the rodeo. What a strategic time for, for Jesus to enter this way. But have you ever wondered how we get from Hosanna on this day to crucify him just days later? I think to understand that, you've got to understand the culture that these folks lived in. For many of them, their understanding of Messiah had been warped by their culture. They'd lived under decades of being told that the Messiah would bring military revolution against Rome. And often not being told much about the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. So they, they, many of them struggled to understand a Messiah who would not fight against Rome. And they struggled to understand a Messiah that said he was heading to a, a cross, a place where the Romans executed criminals. 
Their culture affected their understanding of Messiah. And I want to ask us a question. Are there any ways our culture has warped our understanding of the Messiah? And when we come to that question of who is Jesus, here's a couple more questions I want us to think about as we go along. Who is really on trial when we wrestle with that question? Is it Jesus or is it those of us who decide how we will respond to him? Who's, who's really on trial? And secondly, if our understanding of Jesus is different than his understanding of himself, whose expectations need to change? Right? If Jesus does not meet my expectations and that somehow keeps me from receiving him or following him, which one of us misses out? Me or Jesus? As we go along the way, I want you to keep those questions in mind. And we're going to unpack seven truths about just what kind of king this is. We're going to start on his journey to Jerusalem in Matthew 20, 29. We're going to meet two of my favorite guys in the Gospels, two blind men. They're going to teach us some things about how we ought to approach the king. 2029, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. How many does, does Matthew tell us? Two. Now, I want to help us through something here. I want to arm you for a discussion you might have when you step outside this room. Mark, in chapter 10, when he mentions this, he, he only mentions one guy. You know his name? Bartimaeus. I hear it from some of you. Skeptics will look at that and say, see, that's a contradiction. In your Bible, Matthew mentions two, and Mark only mentions Bartimaeus. Are you prepared to answer them? What would you say? How would you answer them? I want to introduce you to an important phrase you need to have ready. Apparent contradiction. There's a difference between a real contradiction and an apparent contradiction, something that looks like a contradiction. And often these go away with just a little bit of thought. Okay, just give it a little bit of thought. Did Mark tell us in his gospel that it was only Bartimaeus? No. No, that, that would have been a contradiction if he had said only Bartimaeus was blind and only Bartimaeus was healed. Mark just focused on one of the two men who was there. Some have suggested that maybe Peter knew Bartimaeus. Maybe, maybe Peter, who told Mark about it, knew him well and so focused on Bartimaeus. Apparent contradiction. Often, if you give it a little thought and just encourage someone else to give it a little thought, you'll see there's no contradiction at all. But three things about the way these guys approach Jesus I think we can learn from. First, even though they were blind, they were perceptive. They were perceptive about who Jesus was. It says, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, 
son of David. He had amazing perception. They knew a couple things. He was Lord. He was merciful. They said, have, have mercy on us. Then they even call him the son of David. Who is that in their mind? That's the Messiah, the long-expected king. When you pray, do you think much about who it is you're talking to? These guys did, but they weren't just perceptive. They were also persistent. Verse 31 says, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. We're not told exactly why, but in that time, rabbis would often teach their disciples as they walked. Maybe Jesus had been giving a lesson, and so these guys start yelling, and the, the crowd, maybe the disciples say, hey, he's teaching here. Stop interrupting. Could have been that. Maybe some of them are thinking, hey, Jesus has much more important things to focus on right now. Some of them probably thought he's going to Jerusalem to set up that earthly kingdom. Doesn't have time to deal with two blind beggars. We don't know what they were thinking, but they told him to stop. Did they? Says they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And I look at their persistence, and I want to talk to us about our prayer lives. I want to tell you something you need to know. The last thing the demons want you to do is be crying out in prayer to the Almighty God. They will do everything in their power to keep you from praying. I, I often say it like this. We are either going to be a praying church or we're just playing church. So the last thing the demons want you to be doing is crying out to God, and they will use many things. They will use busyness in your life and mine. They will use discouragement in your life and mine. They will use fatigue in your life and mine. But I want to ask us a question. Will you follow the example of these two blind men? Press on and pray anyway. There are things in your life and mine that we need to persist in prayer about. As a parent, one that jumped out to me is our, our children. You may be in that same boat too. But if it's not children, you figure out what is it you need to persist in prayer about. But listen to what Charles Spurgeon said for those of us who need to persist in prayer for our children. He said we need to engage in agonizing prayer on their behalf while they're still babies Sin is there, so let our prayers begin to attack it. Our cries for our offspring should precede those cries that herald their arrival into a world of sin. Even before they're born, he says, start praying for them. In the days of their youth, we will see evidences of that dumb and deaf spirit that will neither pray properly nor hear the voice of God in the soul. But Jesus still commands, bring him to me. When they're grown up, they may wallow in sin and foam with enmity against God. Then when our hearts are breaking, we should remember the great physician's words. Bring him to me. We must never cease until our children cease to breathe. No case is hopeless while Jesus lives. We must persist in prayer for our children. What do you need to persist in prayer about today? 
They were persistent, but I love that they were also particular. Were particular as they cried out to Jesus. Verse 32, stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Put yourself in their shoes. What do you want me to do for you? They were ready. Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. They knew what they wanted from Jesus, and they put it right out on the table. They were particular. Let me ask you, if Jesus were to ask you that question, what do you want me to do for you? Do you have a particular answer in mind, or would you fall into the rut that all of our general prayers often do? Help us sleep good and have a safe day tomorrow? Or do you have something particular this morning that you'd like to bring before the almighty Lord? As Jesus responds to them, we're going to start to see seven answers to this question. What, what kind of king is this? The, the first thing we see is he's a king who shows pity. The word also means compassion. Okay, verse 34. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. You see, the crowd may have thought Jesus was too busy for two blind beggars, but they failed to understand what Jesus had just told his disciples last week. Whoever would be great among you must be the servant of, of all. Think about this. Even on the way to fulfilling his mission, the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, he had time to stop and touch two blind beggars. I love that about our Savior. And I want you to hear this this morning. Somebody needs to hear this. You came in carrying burdens. Jesus is not too busy for you. This morning, the king is not too busy for you. We have a king who shows pity. Second, we also have a king who is the great physician. Because immediately they recovered their sight. Now, this next little line is awesome. You can read right past it and go on. What's it say right after they recovered their sight? They recovered their sight and followed him. That brings us to an important question in our lives. When the Lord answers that prayer you've been bringing time and time again, does our gratitude lead us to follow him close on his heels? Or do we go back right to our own way once that particular thing's been, been answered? Immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. He's a king who's the great physician. Third, I want to talk about a king who is preeminent. Preeminent. Verse 21 says, When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, we'll come back to Mount of Olives at the end. Keep Mount of Olives in your mind. Nice view looking down on the city of Jerusalem, the temple from there. But says, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, think about what's going on here. I just put it like this. If I grab my older two sons, Jaden and Evan, and say, hey, guys, I want you to go out to Dewey this morning. I saw a driveway on Kachina out there. There's a Toyota Tundra. The guy leaves it unlocked all the time. So I want you guys to get in there and hotwire it and, and bring it back to me, okay? And then somebody in the house sees what's going on in the driveway and, and comes out and says, what do you think you're doing? And my son say, my dad said he needs it. <laughs> are, are they going to be like, well, okay, that's fine then. No, what's the natural question on their mind? Who does your dad think he is? <laughs> now, let me ask you a question. Not just who, do, who does Jesus think he is here. Who does Jesus know he is? He is the Lord. He said the Lord needs them. And as the Lord, he has the absolute preeminence and right to commandeer anything he wishes for his good purposes. He is preeminent. Fourth, he is a king who is a prophecy fulfiller. Around 500 years earlier, think about that. Our country has not even existed that long. About 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah in 9.9 wrote, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. From five centuries before. Did you know that in his first coming alone, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies? If you ever start to doubt, is, is the Bible really God's word? Take one or two hours this week and research the prophecies fulfilled specifically by Jesus from centuries before. And not just prophecies. Think about the whole Bible, right? Jesus said to the Pharisees, it points to me. You, you know it backwards and forward, yet you refuse to come to me. We touched on this at the training we were at yesterday, but imagine a book written over 1,500 centuries by over 40 authors from three continents in all different occupations and walks of life and yet has one unified theme, Jesus Christ. How does that happen? And Josh McDowell brings out, if you want to get a sense of just the wonder of that, just go to your workplace this week and find 10 people all in the same year, 2023, that all have the same occupation with you Give them each a sheet of paper and ask them to write a one-page document on the meaning of life. You tell me, what's the likelihood that those 10 papers are going to be united? 
you're going to get at least 10 answers back. The wonder of Scripture is it's unified, and it all points to Christ. These prophecies, God tells us why he gives prophecies. You know that? It's to show us that he is God, and there is no other. He comes right out and says it in Isaiah 46, 9. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. You want to bolster your faith, study prophecies fulfilled already. That'll bolster your faith that the ones not yet fulfilled surely will be. We have a king who's a prophecy fulfiller. We have a king who's a a prophet himself. You see how all he knew about the city there? Send him in, you'll find this, you'll find that. Verse 6 says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Everything was just as he had spoken from outside the city. We have a king who's a prophet himself. Now, verse 7. This is another verse I want to prepare you to discuss with folks. It's another verse skeptics like to look at and and mock our Bible. Verse 7 says, They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. You know what skeptics will sometimes say? He sat on them. They'll, they'll look at you and they say, how could anyone besides maybe Gumby possibly sit on, on a mother donkey and her cold at the same time? It says he sat on them. Are you prepared to answer that? Again, often these mockeries can be answered with just a little thought. Start with the question, what is them? He sat on them. Common sense tells us it's the cloaks. Cloaks. See, just just a little thought. Mark tells us in 11.7, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Just a little thought. There's a difference between a real contradiction and an apparent contradiction. Don't let them throw you, okay? Mark tells us something else interesting, 11.2. The the colt that he sat on was a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Those of you who work with horses, what do you, what do you call that? Or unbroken. Unbroken, right? And yet he rides this unbroken colt into Jerusalem. This is another hint at his power, right? Why? Because the same Savior who turned water into wine, stilled the wind and the waves, makes demons beg for mercy, shows his power over this unbroken colt because it is his creation. Now, there's a big contrast in his entrance to that of mighty warlords of Rome. When they came back from a victory, they didn't come in on a colt of a donkey. They came in on a mighty war horse, right? What's that mean? Well, 
in America, we might not think a lot of donkeys. We might kind of despise them compared to horses. Not there. They weren't despised. But what it tells us is he was not coming in war. He was coming in peace. He was coming in peace. In fact, Solomon, the mighty king of Israel during a time of peace, once rode a donkey. First Kings one thirty three. David, the king, said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. He's on a mule. This is the sixth of our seven things about what kind of king is this. He's a king who came as the prince of peace. How would they respond? Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. These are signs of homage. It would be an honor for this one to ride across my, my garment. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. You know what Hosanna means? Save now. Save now. It's something you would cry out to a king or, or to God from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It reminds us of when he was born, Luke 2. What did the angels say? Glory to God in the highest. And what they're saying here is praise to God in the highest for, for sending Messiah. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? That word stirred up is, is visual in the Greek. It's the word from which we get seismic. It's like there was an earthquake of wondering, who is this really? Because up till now, he's been fairly quiet about this kind of thing in public. But now there's a parade and, and people are shouting out prayers and, and praise. Who is this really? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I want to come back to where we started as we prepare to land the plane this morning. What kind of king is this was the big question. We, we've answered that along the way. But come back to the, those other questions. Who is really on trial? Right? Jesus or those who decide on how to respond to him? And whose expectations need to change? If they're different, does he need to change? Or do I need to change? And if they're different, and it's keeping me from receiving him as my savior or following him, which one of us is missing out? The reality here was the nation of Israel was on trial as Jesus presented himself as king. And the fact that those cheers quickly shifted from Hosanna to crucify him tells us that sparked by the leaders as a nation, they rejected their king. But the reality is in so doing, they brought consequences upon themselves. 
you and I are on trial this morning when it comes to how we respond to Jesus. His expectations for us to receive him as he is will not change. Ours must. The reality of the consequences for Israel explain why at the triumphal entry in Luke, in the midst of all this celebration, we read this in Luke 19.41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Wept in the middle of all this? Why? Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you know when that was fulfilled? 70 AD, when the Romans came and raised Jerusalem to the ground, destroying countless Jews in the process. What they missed, and I don't want you to miss this morning, is the Prince of Peace was exactly who they needed. He's exactly who you need. He's exactly who I need. Think about the timing of this at, at Passover. As he was presenting himself to the nation, this was at a time when many sheep were brought in from the fields outside of Jerusalem to be presented to families for their sacrifice for Passover. And you know what they were looking for? What kind of lamb? A, a spotless lamb that they would sacrifice just days later. It's in that context, Jesus presented himself as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you think about the prince of peace. Think about the offer. It was in their prophets, Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his blood that can take you from being an enemy of God this morning to peace with God. And before he went to the cross, he said to his guys in John 16, 33, I have said these things to, to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let me ask you the most important question you will ever hear. Have you received Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace in your life? If not, this could be your morning. It could be why you're here. I want to tell you something. The next time he comes, it will be very, very different. 
He will not be coming on a colt. This is the seventh reality about who is this king. He is a king of power. And I want you to think about what's going on as you watch the news right now. You think about all of the anti-Israel chants spreading in major cities around the world from Berlin to Washington, D.C. And I'll tell you what I see, what I hear. I hear the same demonic influence that spurred on the crowds as Hitler spoke. Say, why does Satan work so hard to destroy Israel? Why does he hate Israel so much? Because God's integrity is at stake. God has made forever promises to the nation of Israel. And he's tried all along to destroy them. You see him trying to cut off the line in the Old Testament. You see him inspire Herod to try to murder him at his birth. But he escaped. You see his attempt at the cross, but he rose from the dead. And now I believe Satan knows if he could somehow destroy Israel, he would make God out to be a liar. Satan has not learned. He is fighting the wrong opponent. God makes forever promises to Israel that Satan hates. Listen to Psalm 105, 8. God remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Verse 10 says that is an everlasting covenant. When he comes again, it's going to be in power and glory. What we know of as the battle of Armageddon, he's going to come at the climax of that, at a time when Israel is surrounded. That's where we get to the moment in Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I want to read to you a bit more about that from Zechariah. Just take this moment in. Zechariah 14, starting at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. That's why I mentioned that earlier. That lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. On down to verse 6. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, 
half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And that event will have a wonderful impact on the Israelites there that day. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, as they see him coming, on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. They'll get it. And Zechariah 13.10 says this, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What a glorious day that will be. But I want to talk to you today. We're on this side of that coming. You wait till then, it's, it's going to be too late. Now is the day of salvation. Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Prince of Peace? Lord, I thank you for our King. What a merciful King. What a powerful King. What a, what a, a mighty King. What a, a servant who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. King who came as a prince of peace, to go to that cross and spill his blood that though I was an enemy of God because of my sin, he took it upon himself and offers reconciliation to each one in this room, would we only acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I trust him as my Lord and Savior, my Prince of Peace. I believe he died and rose again. And I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to your promises. We look forward to your day of return in glory at the end of those seven years and you come in power and might and keep every one of your promises to the nation of Israel. Gives us hope as your children in the church that not one of your promises to us will fall to the ground either. We praise you. Praise you for Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He went to a cross before he ascended his throne. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.